The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We shouldn't, as Democrats, be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And we've got a lot to get through. The guidelines... For reopening the economy, what's the barometer? We're going to get a firsthand account, and we're going to kick things off with Justin Sink, who's the Bloomberg White House reporter, and then we're going to touch on oil with Vincent G. Piazza, who's Bloomberg Intelligence Oil and Gas Senior Analyst. You got to catch up with Vincent. He's our go-to energy sector guru, especially, I I can't get enough of this story, story, since oil plunged below zero for the first time, the first time in an unprecedented wipeout. But we kick things off with Justin. Uh, The White House has ordered federal agencies, Justin, to begin preparing to return workers to offices, telling them to align their coronavirus reopening plans with those of the states and municipalities where they are located. I think this is interesting because that's a giant step in the reopening direction. And especially for a city like Washington, D.C., which is such an industry-driven town based upon politics and federal workers on not just in Congress, not just at the White House, but obviously defense contractors and whatnot. This is a massive deal. And, 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 and Justin, I want to read for you the statement, not from the president, but from Russ Vaught. And everyone in town knows who Russ Vaught is, the Office of Management and Budget Director. He wrote in a memo that they distributed to the heads of federal departments and agencies the followings. In partnership with state, local, tribal, and territorial governments and the private sector, the federal government is actively planning to ramp back up government operations to the maximum extent possible as local conditions warrant. Agencies are encouraged to allow federal employees and contractors to return to the office in low-risk areas. Justin Sink, is Washington, D.C. a low-risk area? Yeah, so obviously I think D.C. is not quite uh, ready to to reopen itself. Mayor Bowser here in the city has said that uh, she's going to reevaluate on May 15th where the the city is at, and so it's unlikely that we're going to see federal workers returning to their desks, you know, in the next week or two. That being said, you know, you're right. This D.C. is definitely a company town, and, and it's going to have a huge impact here in Washington. But more than three-quarters of the federal workforce is not in the Washington, D.C. area. You know, they're spreading offices and, and bureaus all across the country. And so I think what this really sort of represented was a, an effort by the president, by the White House, who have obviously been eager to reopen the economy to signal that, that federal workers are going to be part of this first wave of, of workers going back. And we're already seeing today the, the governor of Georgia announcing his steps to, to push forward with the reopening. We know that there's some other governors who want to start the, the sort of at least month-long three-phase uh, process that the White House laid out last week. And so 
this is part of that push. You know, in my in my show prep, I, I underlined this. Justin reporting on this has been ahead of folks. So Justin's our White House reporter. But I, I, I wanted to highlight it, but I can't find anything. I've been cleaning my place and I can't find my house. Anyway, but <laughs> um, under the reopening, I know, exactly. And I've locked myself out of my place like twice during this pandemic. Enough of that. Under the reopening guidelines, the White House issued states can begin the first phase of returning to normal economic and social life after they record a decline in coronavirus cases for two weeks and determine that their hospitals are prepared for a potential rebound. So that's so important. So if you're tracking the numbers every morning, uh, like like all of us have been doing in this, you're looking for a, a decline in coronavirus uh, cases for two weeks. And then federal agencies can then lift their mandatory work from home requirements. But workers who are able to perform their duties remotely is obviously are uh, going to be encouraged to do so. So a two week is that that's the magic math, I guess, Justin. Yeah, although so it's it's not only a decline in case cases, but also that second component, which is that the city or the, the local government feels like they've got the capacity in case uh, you know, a coronavirus case or, or a group of cases explodes that they can both uh, make sure that everybody that needs a hospital bed, needs intensive care, can can get that care in a, in a safe way, not in a sort of field hospital type situation like we saw in New York during the height of the crisis. And then, you know, secondly, that the state feels like they can appropriately con- uh, conduct contact tracing. So anybody who came into touch or, or was around somebody who ended up getting the virus would be notified come in for testing um, to, to sort of keep this from, from spreading out in the way that we saw early in the crisis. So that, that's the first two-week period, and it's each phase, each of the three phases uh, requires sort of maintaining those conditions for another two weeks. And so the, the ramp-up that the federal government's envisioning is pretty gradual and would only happen over um, kind of a, a month-long timeline in the best possible case scenario. You know, I kind of like it. I mean, this makes sense to me, folks, that it's all we're all in this together and not not in the economic sense, but in the sense of if we respect the social distancing guidelines, even as they are gradually lifted, then we get more and more of the because the social distancing works. So then we get more and more back quickly if if we continue to respect the easing of them. But in a, in a city like D.C., I think it's it's tough. I mean, good luck, Hogan. Good luck, Bowser, Governor Hogan, Mayor Bowser, because of the the boundary line, the geographic boundary lines. So the, the mayor Bowser, I mean, has been working with the administration and government of federal government officials, just given the proximity to everything. But it, it that is a complex issue. Is it not Justin? Yeah. And I, I think that there's a real tension that still exists here, right? So everybody, I, oh, I feel it. Is eager to get back to work. Everybody uh, wants to get back to normal as quickly as possible. But the real kind of concern and, and something that governors and, and Mayor Bowser and others have voiced, even though they, they say generally working with the federal government has gone uh, fairly well in terms of the distribution of, of ventilators or PPE or that sort of stuff, is we're not sure that the testing platform is online and available in the way that it needs to be right now so that if somebody you know if there are these flare ups as we start to open back up that everybody can be tested and and secondly the idea of doing contact tracing which is you know you get sick you create a list of everybody who you came in touch with and then somebody from the government calls all of them and says hey you need to come in for a test 
Johns Hopkins uh, says that that could they could need a hundred thousand workers to sort of do that in a in a comprehensive way on a nationwide level, and that's going to be especially true in cities like D.C., like New York, where you know you interact with tons of people on a, a metro train coming in and out to, of, of work at a restaurant or a bar that you might go to in an open plan office where you see people all day. And so, you know, while I think we're going to see some of the more rural states, some of the more spread out areas, places where the virus hasn't kicked up, uh, be able to start moving towards these openings, there's a real question of whether the the infrastructure exists yet and how long it's going to take for, especially for cities and especially for a a federal city like D.C. All right. Good stuff, Justin. By the way, I was uh, on my one of my daily walks. I went to Ted's Bulletin, had to get a Pop-Tart, had to get a cup of coffee this morning after I got off air. Guess what I saw, Justin? I saw someone with a Philadelphia Eagles mask on. Oh, go birds. It was a sign. It was a beautiful day. There was no wind for the first time in ever. It felt like all pandemic. The wind calmed down, and I thought, you know what? Maybe a glimmer of hope. The Eagles have landed on a mask in the nation's capital. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Much more on the energy sector coming up. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and I'm just trying to get a Philadelphia Eagles face mask for when I go to the grocery store. If you can tell me where I can get a Philadelphia Eagles face mask, I will wear it. I will wear it down by the stadium. I will wear it down by the wharf because that's, in a weird way, (laughs) going to help me want to wear a mask. Did I say too much? Oil plunged below zero for the first time in unprecedented wipeout. Unprecedented. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal of all of the wild unprecedented swings in financial markets since the coronavirus pandemic broke out. None has been more jaw-dropping than Monday's collapse in a key segment of U.S. oil trading. Joining me on the telephone line is our go-to energy guru, Vincent G. Piazza, Bloomberg Intelligence Oil and Gas Senior Analyst. Vincent what happened today? Well, you have the double shock, Kevin, of both demand degradation and severe demand degradation, along with continuing elevated production from the U.S. So um, what we're tracking here is storage capacity, and we're filling storage extremely quickly here in the U.S., So we are now roughly 77, 78 percent filled on storage, um, and we still have an abundance of production coming through. Uh, Because of the way the U.S. production operates, it'll take some time for that to come on off, given the uh, uh, severe production, uh, the the CapEx cuts to rein in production. Uh, So we'll likely continue to build out on storage. Uh, From what we discussed over the last month or so, we think we roughly have anywhere between three to four months left, uh, given the pace of production and the pace of builds. So we could be filled uh, somewhere around June, um, but it is a severe, uh, significant issue because of this double shock of severe demand degradation and also ongoing production. So, you know, I got I got some family members who, who know a thing or two about refineries. And, I mean, they were explaining it to me this way. So there's too much unused oil. They've got nowhere to store it. 
I mean, and, and they, they explained it pretty good in the, on the terminal. With the pandemic bringing the economy to a standstill, there is so much unused oil sloshing around that American energy companies have run out of room to store it, a.k.a. if you have too much can't like I rent if you if you pandemic shopped and you bought too many canned goods and you're shoving them in your cabinet somewhere you got no place to put anything is that is that is that is that what's happening yeah I mean we basically have such a severe degradation in demand you know think about it um gasoline usage down diesel usage down jet fuel usage down and of the 20 some odd million barrels a day that we consume as an economy uh, you roughly have somewhere between two-thirds, seventy-five percent of that transportation-focused. So, if no one's going anywhere, if no one's delivering anything to anyone, and no one's flying anywhere, um, that those barrels have to find a home. Those crude barrels have to find a home, and they're rushing into storage quite quickly, and we're filling up rather quickly. Let me tell you something. We all want the oil chart. We all, I'm sorry. We all want the COVID-19 chart, the flatten the curve chart thing. We want it to look like the chart that happened today with oil because it just goes – talk about flattening the curve. There is no more curve for oil. What does it mean? So that's what's actually going on on the policy standpoint. Vincent, what does that mean in terms of, the, in terms of three months out, six months out, nine months out for geopolitics and domestic politics? Well, we need to reopen this economy. Um, and the faster we can flatten that curve, the faster we can open in phases uh, this economy and also the global economy because crude and the various refined products from crude are global seaborne commodities that travel. So we need the global economy to o- open up. We need people to get back on the road. We need people to get back in the air and, and truckers to get back on the road as well to reopen this economy and to generate um, additional demand and bring back some some demand for these services, for these transportation services. So, I mean, last week we had the energy secretary on and uh, Secretary Brulette, and, you know, they had that OPEC plus deal uh, about a week ago, I believe. I mean, but I guess I guess that was really that didn't really do anything. So what it really does is it delays the inevitable. Um, you roughly took off 9.7 million barrels of production, but the demand side overwhelms the amount you've taken off uh, in production. Global storage capacity is also quite significant. Um, it's running about three, four months until they hit uh, storage capacity as well. So it's the same issue globally as we're seeing here in the U.S., where capacity is filling, storage is filling up pretty quickly and coming close to full capacity. Okay, so here's a very political question for you. Uh, come November, we'll get, what will the price of gas be? Well, are we talking gasoline or natural gas? I guess I mean, for Americans, for Americans paying at the pump to fill up their tank and their cars, is it going to be cheap or is it going to be expensive come election day? Um. I think it will because this issue won't go away very quickly. It will be relatively inexpensive compared with history in other elections. See, that's what's so weird about this is that this isn't necessarily a good economic development that we're discussing with Vincent Piazza or Bloomberg Intel oil and gas senior analyst. But politically, come November, if, if gas is cheap, it's bad for the president's donors, but it could be weirdly good for his voters. If you, you hear what I'm saying, Vincent? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, 
people have to get on the road and yeah. they have to fill up their tanks. And if they can fill it up um, more cheaply uh, uh, in the 2020, uh, in 4Q of 2020, it'll make a big impact on their wallet, especially if we're still dealing with uh, some of these uh, a potentially phased reopening of the economy. Is there anything that Congress or the administration or uh, can? Is there anything that the administration can negotiate with OPEC Plus uh, to 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 address this, or that Congress can do to address this? Well, I, I think uh, there was a request not long ago to help the EMP companies as well uh, with some type of bailout, similar to what was experienced yep. by the airlines, and I think that was resoundingly rejected. Um, you know, the energy the energy business does still have a black eye, right? It's not exactly um, the one business that um, Democrats yeah. favor. Uh, but look, you know, we the industry employs significant personnel in key states across right. the country. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Battlegrounds. and in other states. Battlegrounds. Battleground states. And, and there's also a knock-on effect to other we're going to have to leave it there. Much more coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I got to be honest. I really, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I am so grateful and filled with so much gratitude that that wind died down. Last week, you could not step outside without getting whacked by a gust of wind. I mean, it was insane. Matt Brooks is on the line. Here's someone who I know would get a Philadelphia Eagles face mask if he could get his hands on one. Matt Brooks is a good friend of the program. Uh, and of course, he's also the... Uh, the guy at the Republican Jewish Coalition, uh, and we're appreciative to have him on. Have you been able to find a Philadelphia Eagles face mask? Oh, I've got I've got face masks, pajamas, sweatpants, sweatshirts, hats. What do you need? Bananas. Well, I, I could use a Philadelphia Eagles uh, face mask for when I go to get my coffee every morning. Done. All right, I appreciate that. Look at that. I, I mean, listen, that's not that's not unethical. That's just you know, there. It's a Philadelphia Eagles. Even though we're we're in Washington, we're allowed to you know, uh, I, I you know, I'll make my own. How about I'm gonna I'm gonna correct the record right now so I don't get myself in trouble. I will, if you I'm send all, me I'm the link. Up. It, I'm all geared up for uh, for draft week. This so is the story of my life. I dig myself a deeper hole, a deeper ditch every single. Day, my friend. Okay, there is some breaking somewhere, news. Somewhere Christine is having an aneurysm right now. Oh, wait. Let's look in the video chat. <laughs> let's see. It's it's on a delay. But there it is. Yeah, she's rolling her eyes. She's like, walk it back, Kev. Walk it back. <laughs> um, what I want to ask you about, uh, uh, the Matt Brooks, Republican strategist and executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, headlines crossing on the Bloomberg terminal uh, literally as we speak about the new developments in Israel and their government. Uh, and just to read it, Netanyahu 
seals power share deal with rival to tackle virus. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and rival Benny Gantz have reached an agreement to share power and provide emergency cover for an economy pummeled by the coronavirus and a health system pushing its limits. What does this mean for geopolitics in the Middle East? Well, I think it, it, it you know, it takes some uncertainty and, and moves it to, to some certainty. I think everybody in the region, look, it took a global pandemic for Israel to get out of this, this spiral of, you know, election after election after election. Uh, and, and had this not happened, I think there was a good chance they were, they were going to a fourth election. Uh, that's no way to run a country, and it's certainly no way to run a country in the middle of, a, of an international uh, global crisis like we're like we're seeing today. And so, this was a good catalyst. Uh, current Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will serve 18 months, continuing his role for the next 18 months uh, with Benny Gantz uh, in the minority. And then, in 18 months, they will they will switch, and Gantz will become the Prime Minister. So they've established a power sharing arrangement. Uh, and I think that's uh, I think that's good on many many fronts. So it's it's good to have uh, you know a leadership team in place and and Israel to be able to get out of this circle of repeated elections and, and bring some stability to the government. All right, let's bring it back home now. As the Small Business Administration has been wrapped up in the congressional back and forth, the left and the right, the infighting. I spoke with Congressman. Uh, Gottheimer uh, earlier today, he's a Democrat from New Jersey, Northern Jersey, and yep. he was enraged. I mean, and, and listen, I, I don't think it's fake. I, I've interviewed Republicans and Democrats over the weekend and this morning, and just my, my general sense is the rank and file members are enraged at, at leadership on both sides that this has not been handled. Then you get this report about Shake Shack. Matt, did you hear about this? Shake well, by Shack? both sides, do you mean, yeah, but by both sides, do you mean House and Senate, or you mean Leadership of Republicans and Democrats. Leadership of Republicans and Democrats. Well, I think that's a little misplaced. I think the you know the the, the PPP funds ran out on Thursday. Leader McConnell is ready, willing, and able to bring a vote to replenish those funds any day. Now they're going to be in pro forma session right. uh, tomorrow. Tonight. Tonight. And yeah. and it's it's Schumer and Pelosi that are that are basically putting uh, small businesses out of business. Uh, and ruining people's lives by trying to use this as a way to leverage their own uh, policy agenda. Well, okay, so that I hear you on that, and just to—I mean, in full disclosure, when I talk to Democrats, they say, you know, oh, they got to—you got to fund municipalities and state workers and whatnot. I want to cut through the partisanship right now because you're a straight shooter, and this is insane that this hasn't gotten done. And that this hasn't been a and, and, and Congressman Gottheimer said this to me earlier today on Bloomberg Television. I mean, the notion that companies like Shake Shack are having to return ten million dollars in emergency loans to the U.S. government because journalism called them out on it. It's these either these loans are for big businesses or they're for Main Street. And that's got to be executed flawlessly. Am I right? No, even under perfect conditions with lots of lead time, ramping up a program of this magnitude is is, is a Herculean task to, to take what they've done, the amount of money that they have, they have tried to inject in the system and do it in a matter of, of days and weeks as opposed to months and years is uh, – it's, first of all, it's impressive they've gotten this, but, but they need to get the system right. And I think, you know, that is that is first and foremost. You see the stake, the, shakes, the Shake Shack uh, – case is a perfect example, but there's just others that are just so grossly uh, out of whack. You know, uh, Harvard University getting money 
when they have a $40 billion endowment. Uh, I mean, that's just wrong when uh, the guy at the local hoagie shop yep. uh, uh, you you know, can't can get personal. Keep business going. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.